1: this morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we started last week in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is a section of the Bible uh, that many of us aren't super familiar with. Uh, It's in the middle of your Old Testament. And it it, it deals with the story of Israel's return from their captivity in Babylon to uh, the land of Israel. Uh, In Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears the news of the city of Jerusalem being in a nasty state. The walls are torn down. They're vulnerable to their enemies on the outside. And his heart has been broken uh, over the state of Jerusalem. And so this morning, we resume with uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand as you read God's word?
0: Our reading today is Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love.
1: What is your calling? How do you understand uh, what it is that you are meant to give your life to do, Uh, your vocation in the world? You know, I received uh, a number of months ago an invitation to what uh, I've been told is my 20th high school reunion. Uh, I can only attribute this to some kind of accounting error uh, because it certainly cannot have been that long. Uh, And yet, there is a certain amount of anxiety uh, that we feel. Maybe I I feel like I'm not the only one. When you think about walking back onto your high school campus and meeting people that you haven't been with uh, in the last 20 years, right? Imagine yourself going into that situation. Some of you may have done that already. Some of you may have thrown that particular invitation in the trash. But when you go in, uh, one of, I think one of the reasons that our anxiety comes up, uh, aside from just the anxiety that exists in walking into a high school lunchroom, is the anxiety that you know at some point the conversation is going to go to, what do you do? That's one of, when we're making small talk, that's one of the first things that we uh, ask one another in addition to maybe, where do you live? Are you married? All, but, I mean, these questions all bring some anxiety uh, to us. Maybe not. Maybe you're looking forward to going to your high school reunion, and maybe you're a fighter pilot now or have a couple of PhDs or something that you feel really excited about. Hey, you know what? When when those kids ask me what I do, I'm ready. Um, But maybe you go, man, I'm unemployed. I'm I'm not particularly excited to tell them what's going on in my life. Uh, Maybe you have a job that's not very glamorous. Maybe uh, I think I'm the only one in the room that has the unique privilege of ending the conversation by saying, well, I'm a pastor uh, and watching while they find other places to be. But the reality is that our jobs, our callings in this world uh, are a source of anxiety for us. We attach so much of our identity in the world, we can over-identify with our calling such that when we're feeling good about it, we're puffed up, or when we're feeling bad about it, we're laid low and crushed. Or we can feel too detached from our calling and say, well, you know what, I, I do paint houses, but that's not really much about who I am or what I'm passionate about. And so what we need is a way to both care about our calling, to feel good about it, to feel invested in it, to have a sense that what we do is a reflection of who we are, but not be so identified with our calling that we can't think of our identity outside of it, that we can't think of our worth or our well-being apart from it. But the reality is that you were made to matter. You were made to give your life uh, to be a purposeful part of something bigger than yourself. You are made to wake up on Monday mornings and feel like what you're about to contribute the next 40 or 50 waking hours of this next week to matter in some significant way to your neighbors, to the people in your city, to God himself. And so we're going to talk today about calling. In our passage, we see Nehemiah come to embrace his calling. In chapter 1, he was hit with some news that made him incredibly sorrowful. The news of the breakdown of the walls of Jerusalem. We saw him in chapter one in an extended prayer in time of fasting and mourning bring this sadness to God. And today we see him follow this sadness, follow this heartbreak that he had out into the world and actually do something about it. Right? Nehemiah didn't just hear the news and get sad, he didn't just hear the news and say, Well, I'll work this out with God. He didn't just take a few days off work for mental health days and then go back to life as usual. He mourned, he prayed, he was sorrowful. But then he goes back into the world, back into his job. Remember, we we learned last week that he was the cupbearer to the king. And he goes back into his job with an eye towards not just lamenting what's wrong with the world, not just being sorrowful of it, but to try to seek to make it right. He comes with a new calling. If you were to ask what individual Christian life in the last several hundred years has had the most impact on the life and culture of the English-speaking world, your answer might very well be a man named William Wilberforce. He lived in the the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. He was a well-educated, well-born man with lots of connections. He went to the best schools, and despite not really doing all that well in those schools or being particularly driven, through family connections, he managed to find himself elected as a member of parliament in 1780. He was just one of those guys that happened to always fall upwards into success, and so he found himself a member of parliament. He spent six years eating and drinking and accomplishing virtually nothing uh, while a member of the House of Commons. Accomplishing nothing led him to this sense of emptiness and ennui. He found himself lacking the energy to get up and keep going. He wondered, why am I doing all of this? Does it it even matter? And then on Easter of 1786, this lack of motivation and drive that he felt actually led him uh, to his knees where he became a Christian on Easter Sunday. He actually became so gripped by the gospel, so serious about this new life he experienced in Christ, that he thought he might be called to leave parliament and go and become a pastor. Uh, He thought that his life might have been supposed to take that strictly religious turn. And yet he felt convinced uh, that his best usefulness was in parliament. And he became gripped by a sense of sorrow over the state of the soul of his country. This came out to him particularly in the institution of slavery. He he began to see that uh, no nation that claimed to know God, that claimed to be a Christian nation, could continue in this practice of owning image bearers of God. And so he devoted his life in Parliament to uh, the eradication and abolition of slavery. He wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the trade's wickedness appear then my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And he worked and labored tirelessly until uh, the parliament did abolish slavery in 1807. We see in Wilberforce the same pattern that we see in the life of Nehemiah, that these are two men who found their calling at the overlap of the world's brokenness at the purposes of God as they understood it, what God was up to in the world, and then their own sense of identity and gifts and resources. And for each of us, that's where our calling comes into focus. It's in the overlap of those three circles, the world's brokenness, God's purposes, and our unique wiring, our gifts, our identity, and our resources. And so let's look at how these three factors play in helping Nehemiah to clarify his calling and they might help us as well. First, Nehemiah was aware of the brokenness of this world. He became keenly aware of it to the, fact, to the point that he couldn't just live with it anymore. You know, we are gonna, we're not going to dwell on this point uh, for over long. If you're interested in 30-plus solid minutes on brokenness, go download last week's sermon. Uh, that was a heavy dive into the brokenness of the world. But where we see it come up uh, in this passage is that Nehemiah is sad before the king. He's in front of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And Nehemiah is sad. He's sad, he says that he had not yet before been sad in the presence of the king. Now this wasn't just because he happened to always have good days uh, when he was in front of the king. This is because in those days the norms of the court, the expectations of life in front of a king was that you were going to put a smile on and you were going to be happy. You were going to act like being in front of the king made you the most privileged and blessed person in the world. To be downcast, to be sorrowful, to have the wrong expression on your face in front of the king could literally cost you your head. And so Nehemiah uh, makes a calculated risk when he decides to let his emotions show in front of the king to let his face show what was going on in his heart as his heart was breaking over the state of the city. And the king takes notice. Why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. The king may not have the highest of emotional intelligence here, right? He said, you're not sick? What's wrong with you? Are you just, you just bummed out? What's, why, are you, why are you daring to be sad in front of me? But then he is moved to ask Nehemiah, what's wrong? And what can I do? What are you requesting of me? I do think it's worth noting that Nehemiah's sorrow is a place for him to connect with someone who shares none of his religious presuppositions, right? The king of Persia followed the Persian gods. He actually believed himself to be a god. And yet here's somebody who shared none of the religious worldview that Nehemiah shared. And yet in his sorrow, in his sadness, there's a point of connection where King Artaxerxes says, what's going on? Tell me why you're sad. And I think that in in my experience, this is one of the primary ways that we can connect in a meaningful way with our neighbors, some of whom may share uh, some of our beliefs, others of whom may not. But there's something true uh, that the world knows that things are broken. Right? Your neighbors, the people that you do life and work and play with, we all know that the world is broken. We may not be able to label why. We may not be able to have a language for why things are the way they are. But every human being under the sun knows what it is to have a broken heart. They know what it is to suffer under injustice. They know what it is to look at the news and to feel without hope. And we, when we offer our honest sadness... Our honest lament of the way things are to the world, it actually becomes a powerful place of connecting. What we offer the world may be a language to attach to brokenness, a language to attach to why things are the way they are, that creates a a way in for a deeper conversation. I really do believe that our sorrow, more than our fake Christian optimism, uh, may be the point of connection that we offer our neighbors. Because as Christians, we have something more to offer than optimism. We have hope. We have an honest hope, which is willing and able to look at the brokenness of the world, to be sad over the way things aren't the way they should be. And so Artaxerxes connects with Nehemiah here in the midst of his sadness. Because Nehemiah was so, uh, let himself be so heartbroken over the sadness of the world that he couldn't just go on with the status quo anymore. And that is, I think, one of the first keys to figuring out what unique thing in the world God has called you to, is what are the areas of brokenness in the world that you can't just get on with, that you can't just say, oh yeah, this isn't quite the way it should be, but I'm just going to move on with my life. Right? We all know that things aren't perfect, so I'm just going to wake up and keep on going. Nehemiah got to a place with the breakdown of the walls in Jerusalem where he couldn't just keep on with the status quo. You know, the world is, uh, is so broken that we can't as one person, you can't make it your project to redeem the entire world, right? There was one guy who made that his entire project. He still makes it his entire project. Uh, but as a limited human being, you cannot believe yourself to be the one who is going to fix all the broken things in the world. Now what you can do is have a heart that's vulnerable to being broken to where it's gripped by one particular area or a few particular areas of the brokenness of this world. You know what it's interesting is I look out in this congregation, I, uh, I see people who have let their hearts be broken by particular areas of the ways that this world isn't the way that it should be and have chosen to engage with it. I know some of you who are so heartbroken uh, as Larry uh, prayed, over, uh, over the plight of children, that you've aligned your life, whether it be in education or childcare, to providing safe and nurturing environments for children because children are made to grow under the safety and protection and nurture of people who are looking out for them. I know some of you who've been so gripped uh, by the state of healthcare and illness in the world that you've given your life to the pursuit of medicine, not just here, where there's money to be made off of it, but around the world where very often it's done in secret and done without much thanks. I know others of you who've been gripped by the state of the justice system and so go into our prisons and our juvenile justice centers with the hope of the gospel. Right? I see, uh, just looking out, I, mean, I could name names and go on for a long time. I know some of you have been so gripped by the plight of orphans that you've given your life to foster care and to adoption, and it's beautiful to see. And this is the the soil out of which our callings grow. When you see things that break your heart, and you say, you know what, I can't fix everything, but I'm going to pray that God will use me to fix something, that part of my life will be used for the healing of what's wrong. And you grow discontent, uh, and you give yourselves to it. So Nehemiah was aware of the brokenness of the world. But beyond that, he had, a, he had an awareness of the redemptive purpose of God. Right? If you only look at the brokenness of the world, you lose hope. Right? If you only look uh, at the news or at your neighborhood or your own life and you think about, and you see how broken everything is, it's easy to lose hope in the light of that. But Nehemiah had a vision not only for what was broken, but what God was doing in the midst of this world. Right? He knew the character of the God of Israel. Right? He knew the God who's been working to make all things new. He knew the God that created the world in love and made humanity to dwell with him. He knew the God who after the fall and the exile out of Eden didn't give up on humanity, but began working to redeem and to call men and women to himself. He knew the covenant promises of God who joined himself to the people of Israel saying, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. The God who promised them descendants as as innumerable as the stars in the sky. The God who promised them a land to call their own. A God who promised them the temple where he would dwell with them. The God who promised to work through them to actually draw all the nations of the world to love him and to serve him and to worship him. Right, He knew the promises of God who God told them, That if they broke covenant, they might be cast into exile. But that if they repented and turned, he would gather them back to himself. Root them in the land of Israel. Establish Jerusalem again. We saw that in his prayer in chapter 1. And so when Nehemiah looks out at the way things are. And the way they shouldn't be the way they are. He knows that he's not just wishful thinking when he dreams Of God doing something about it. But he knows that his his hope is rooted in the promise of God. That God is about the business of setting these broken things straight again. And so he goes to to Artaxerxes confident that his life is lining up with God's promises and God's plan. Look at what he says in verse 8. He knows that his success isn't just because of his own eloquence. It's not just because of the whims of the king. It says, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Right? He knew that God was working where he was working. He knew that God was doing something and that he was using him in the process. This is why when Artaxerxes asks him, what do you want me to do for you? It says that he prayed and then he asked the king. Right? So the king asked, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I said a prayer, I asked God, and then I asked Artaxerxes. Because he knew as powerful as the king was, that his request ultimately rested on a power greater than the king. It rested on God himself. You know, this is a fascinating uh, scene because the reason, remember what's broken Nehemiah's heart is the fact that the walls of Jerusalem have not been rebuilt to a place where they provide a stable and safe home for his people. The reason those walls are broken down, we see in Ezra chapter 4. The reason those walls are broken down is because of King Artaxerxes, right? It's because of the man that he's now going in front of. Because while Ezra and the early returnees to Israel were rebuilding the walls, some of their enemies around them sent a messenger to the king and said, have the king look up his history about Jerusalem. This is not a city that likes to be ruled by foreign kings. If they build up their walls, next thing you know, they're going to build up their military, then they're going to have their own king, and then they're going to rebel against you. And so let them have their temple, let them have their religion, but don't let them finish the walls, or you'll lose this entire region of the world. And so Artaxerxes, it's this great little scene, he goes and he reads his history books uh, there in the libraries of Persia, and he says, you know what, you're right. These Israelites are troublemakers, they don't like us, and so, so stop the construction of the walls. And so when Nehemiah goes to Artaxerxes, he's not reaching a neutral person. He's not coming to somebody who's open to a a compelling argument. He has already said, no, no, you cannot have a walled and strong and safe city. And yet Nehemiah is willing to make this ask, an ask that might risk his own life. Because he knows when he's making this ask, he's aligning his life with what God has already promised he was going to do. Right? God has already promised he was going to gather his people back to himself. He was going to root them in the land. He was going to give them safety and security there. And so because God has already promised to be doing that, Nehemiah knew that if I align my life with what God's already doing, his hand will be on it and he will be in it and he will give it success. You know, a lot of times when we ask, sometimes you know, a common question that we ask when we think about our calling, when we think about our vocation, is we ask, what is God's will for my life? Right, As as a pastor, I I help people think through this question all the time. It's one of the biggest questions that we ask in in the big moments of our lives. Is it God's will for me to take this job in Chicago or this job in New York? Is it God's will for me uh, to to adopt a job being a painter or to be a plumber? Should I go into law? Should I go into medicine? Should I go into education? You know, the the questions are endless. And what we often want to know is what is God's will? For my life, and I think that often we make it um, into a kind of fortune-telling uh, situation, where we shake up the magic eight ball uh, and see, God, what do you want me to do? What do you expect of me to, to do in my life? We open the God's God's Word, the Bible, like you open a fortune cookie, uh, and and just, oh well, it says here that I'm supposed. I opened a Nehemiah two. I guess I'm supposed to be a wall builder. Uh, that's what I'm going to do with my life. But the reality is the way that God usually guides us is that he gives us parameters in his word for what matters, for what he's doing. He's certainly, that the parameters of his word uh, chalk some things off as out of bounds for what we ought to pursue, right? If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know, becoming a pimp, uh, and I'm wondering if that's God's will for my life, you can go, no, right? It says in here... <laughs> I, I don't even have to pray about it. I know that's not something you're supposed to do. But, but does, God want me to be an, does God want me to be an accountant? Well, that might be a better use for your gifts. Uh, and God doesn't, there's nothing, there's nothing in here that tells you whether you ought to be an accountant or whether you ought to be a lawyer, right? That is lived, uh, the, the category that God's word gives us for those kinds of decisions is wisdom, right? Within the parameters that God's given us, We're expected to live our lives with wisdom, uh, to know ourselves, to know the world, to know our gifts, and to chart our way through that with wisdom. Not worried at every step of the way whether or not we have stepped out of God's will or into it, whether or not we're uh, wandering or whether we're in his path. Right, That he promises uh, that if we live our lives with wisdom within his covenant, within his law, uh, that he will direct us. But how can you know that what you're giving your life to with what you're spending your labor on, is the kind of thing that God's hand will be on, the kind of thing that he will be about. Well, instead of doing what we normally do, which is to say, I'm going to do what I want, basically. I'm going to do what I think I'll be good at, what I think will make me money, and then I'm going to ask God to bless it. Instead, the posture that Nehemiah takes, instead of him doing work where he wants to and hoping that God shows up, he goes and does work where he knows God is working what he knows God is already doing, where he knows God's hands are already engaged. And he says, if I line my life up with that, I know that he'll already be working. Right? I know God wants to rebuild Jerusalem. So if I align my life with that, he will work in me and through me. You notice that Nehemiah, Nehemiah isn't just sad. Uh, it's not just like Nehemiah likes walls and he's sad that one of them is broken down. right? Nehemiah, Is heartbroken over the breakdown of the walls of Jerusalem. Right? He's he's broken down because of the breakdown of the city of God, the place where God's name dwells, where his presence dwells, the city that he knew was the redemptive hope of the entire world. That if you want to have God's hand in your work, align your life with the building of the city of God. Right? We know in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that city of God is the church. Right, That our lives, for our lives to have purpose and meaning, if we align them with the renewal of the church for the sake of the renewal of the world, that God's hands are committed to being in that. That God loves to bring renewal, to build up his people, his body, to see new people come to know the gospel and to come to be gathered in, to see the church gathered and built up in the truth, to see the church expand, to see new churches started, To see those Christians as they're they're formed in the church to go out into every sphere of society to bring the gospel, to bring the good news, right? That is a purpose that we know that God has promised uh, to bless, that he will build his church. And you know, friends, I'm, I'm convinced that that is the one calling that gives meaning and order to all of our various callings. Right, We all bear a ton of callings in our lives. Right, I'm a pastor, I'm also a husband, I'm a father, I'm a neighbor, I'm a friend, I'm a son. Right? We have, our callings aren't just what we do. We have, we have many layers to our calling. And all of those different layers to our calling need to be given a particular order. And I'm convinced, you know, Nehemiah knew that, the, that his time and place, his moment in redemptive history, meant aligning his life with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And I'm convinced that in our day and age, our time, the thing, the calling that gives meaning and order to all of the various callings of our lives is that we, each one of us, are called to participate in the re-evangelization of the post-Christian West. Right? We live in a post-Christian world. Uh, The sooner we come to terms with that, the easier things will be. We are in a missionary encounter with a world that gave up Uh, on Christianity in the mid-1700s. Just as surely as the first missionaries rode uh, with the gospel in their hands into, into the West, we go into our parenting, we go into our marriages, we go into our jobs, we go into our neighborhoods, into a world that is largely given up on the plausibility of the kingdom of God. And what gives order to every bit of it is that we live out our lives as missionaries in that place. We go about our marriages in a world that's long since given up on the stability of the home, that's long since given up on the enduring faithfulness of the covenants. We raise our children uh, to, to, to be prepared to face life in a world that will increasingly view them as crazy people uh, for embracing the faith. We go into our callings as people who are there to show that life can have meaning and purpose in our jobs. And this will be a multi-generational project Right, this isn't going to happen in my 50s or 60s where I look up and go, oh, awesome, we did it. We live in a, live in a Christian society. No, it is going to be a lifelong project of bearing witness to the gospel uh, in our lives and in our words and our churches and our community. And it's something that God has promised uh, that he will do uh, and that he will bless. So Nehemiah is aware of the brokenness of the world, of the redemptive purpose of God, And then he's aware of his own unique giftings, identity, and calling, his own, own, uh, what he brings to the situation. Nehemiah had certain resources. He was cupbearer to the king, which means he had the ear of the most powerful person in the world, right? And so he brings that resource to bear on this particular issue. He's also, as we're going to learn, somebody of incredible uh, logistical and building ability. He's going to accomplish an incredible project over a short time. He's an incredible organizer. And so he brings his abilities, his resources, his connections into uh, the brokenness of this, into the calling that God has to figure out what he's supposed to be doing. Friends, you know that God has gifted you in unique and wonderful ways. God has given you abilities that he's given uh, to know others in the exact same way. He's given you certain resources, certain connections, certain experiences and abilities that he wants to use for the advancement of his kingdom that he wants to use for his work of renewing the world. I had an awesome conversation the other day. We were out here a couple weeks ago working uh, in, uh, in one of the houses that the City Rescue Mission owns. We were doing some landscaping work. Uh, I am not a particularly good landscaper, but I was out there. got to play with a chainsaw. That was fun. Um, but we are out there doing it, and I met a guy. The, the, uh, I don't think he's here. David, are you here? I don't think so. Now, okay, so uh, there's, there's a brother named David, works with the City Rescue Mission, he's a student here, and has given himself to doing the grounds uh, while he's here. Something that he had done in, uh, in his life before he got here, something that he felt particularly called to do. And I was talking to David, and you know, when you meet somebody who's doing what they're called to do, who's doing what he loves to do, who's doing what he's gifted at doing, who, knows what he's, who feels confident in what he's doing, it's inspiring. You know, and, and he, what he said to me, he said, you know, I was here, and I was struggling to figure out uh, what to do. He said, but this is what I do. This is, I'm a, I'm, I've, I've been doing landscaping. And God told me that he made us to tend the garden. Right? He made Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a garden, and he called them to cultivate it. and So that's what I'm going to do while I'm here. I was inspired in my calling just hearing that. I was inspired to know, yeah, that's what it looks like. When someone's doing what they know they're supposed to do, if you want a pep talk for your calling, go meet David and talk to him uh, because it's inspiring. He's given us gifts and he asks us to use them for his glory, for the expansion of his kingdom. But Nehemiah, there was something deeper about him than just his gifts and just his resources. And it's at the level of his identity. Nehemiah was able to do so much. He was able to be used so incredibly. Because he knew that who he was was greater than the sum total of his resources and his connections and his abilities. Look at what he says in verse 3. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Several times he describes the city of Jerusalem as the city of my father's graves. Now that is a fairly morbid way to describe a city. Um, But what's going on here? Nehemiah is saying, though I'm in Persia, I'm not Persian. Right? Though I'm in the king's palace, this is not where I belong. I am a part of those people. Those people who lived their lives, were, were, raised their families, then were died and buried outside Jerusalem. That's the place of my people. I am a part of God's covenant people. I am a part of his chosen people. I'm a part of his beloved people. I don't belong here because my identity is rooted somewhere else. In the scriptures, who we are always takes precedence over what we do. Our identity before God as his beloved sons and daughters. His people, the objects of his affection, is always deeper and more significant than just what we do in the world. God is always more concerned with who you are in who you are to him, than on what you do or accomplish in the world for him. right? We see this pattern over and over in the scriptures. Jesus, in his own life, before he embarked on his ministry, before he went into the wilderness to be tempted, he was baptized in the Jordan. Heaven was ripped open, and the voice of the Father spoke over him as the Spirit descended. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And out of that place of belovedness, Out of that place of spirit, anointing, and giftedness, he was then able to go into his calling, into his life. Friends, the reason that the scene at the high school reunion of having to answer the question, what do you do, causes so much anxiety in us is because we are so prone to identify with what we do. To think that who we are is the sum total of what we do and what we've done. We need to know that who we are is who we are to God and that we belong to Him. Whether the world looks on our callings and looks on our jobs with great honor or if we feel tempted to hang our heads when we say what we do. That who we are matters far more than what we do. Christians throughout history have tried to find ways to remind ourselves of this fact because it's so easy to forget. One of my favorite ways that Christians have reminded ourselves of this, and we'll end here, is in the burial tradition of the Habsburg emperors. This is, I'm a little bit of a history nerd, and so I'm going to let that show for a bit. The Habsburgs ruled most of Europe for several hundreds of years. These are the men that went on to become the Holy Roman emperors. These are men that they had much wealth, they had incredible power. And when they died, they went through for several hundred years the same tradition. They went to one convent, the Campuchin Convent outside of Vienna. And with this great funeral procession bearing the body of the deceased emperor, they would go to the same place uh, and the head of the funeral procession would knock on the door, would bang on the door. And someone would come, one of the priests would come and ask, who asked for entry? They would then say, I am, and give the name of the emperor. I am Leopold. And then they would list out all of the honorary titles that they bore. I will not do all of them because it's like a page and a half. <laughs> 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 I am Leopold, emperor of Austria, apostolic king of Hungary, king of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Slovenia, Galatia, Latomiria of Illyria, king of Jerusalem, archduke of Russia, Grand Duke of Tuscany and Krakow, Duke of the Lorraine, Salzburg, etc., etc., etc. The man at the door would then say, I do not know you, and slam the door in his face. The head of the parade would then knock again. The porter would again ask, who is there? And he would give his simplified name, I am Leopold, his majesty and emperor, the king. The porter again would refuse, saying, I do not know you. For a third time, the head would knock on the door. Who is there? This time, uh, the leader of the funeral procession says, I am Leopold, a poor man, a mortal, and a sinner. And then he would be brought into the church and buried. At the end of the day, what matters about our lives, it's not our titles, it's not what we accomplish, it's not the robes that we wear, the things that we're dressed in, it's not the jobs that we do or our accomplishment. It's that we know ourselves to be a sinner, And we know Christ to be a Savior who gave his life for sinners. We know ourselves to be God's beloved, whether the world looks on us in ways that tend to puff us up or tear us down. What matters is that the Father looks on us as his sons and his daughters. And what we do flows out of who we are for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom. Let's pray.